Good evening, and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow our podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. If you're a returning listener, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Same for all of you new listeners. I know myself, I've probably had enough turkey to last a lifetime, so I think I'm pretty okay to not have turkey for like the next year or two. Hopefully you had many things to be thankful for this holiday. I know for one thing I'm thankful for you listeners, uh, and if you are a new listener and have not yet subscribed, please follow us on Spotify, Google, Megaphone, or Apple. We're available on all your favorite platforms and on whatever device you want to listen to. For tonight's show, we have quite a few new updates, including a, a summary of Winnipeg's trip through the Pacific Division, a couple of quick updates on the Bill Peters situation, and everyone's favorite hot stove topic, NHL trade rumors. My favorite. But before we get to all the spicy rumors and hot takes, here's a look at Winnipeg's road trip, starting with the San Jose game. Coming into Wednesday's matchup against the Sharks, I believe San Jose had won something like 8 of 9 of their last games, uh, which is a pretty good record. For anyone who follows Sean Tierney and Micah Blake McCurdy on Twitter, though, there were definitely some warning signs for San Jose, especially in their scoring chance creation department and the number of scoring chances they were surrendering. It's definitely been a weird season for the Sharks. I mean, this is a franchise that traditionally has had excellent success during the regular season and some pretty decent postseason success, but this season's kind of been a bit topsy-turvy for the team. I don't know exactly what's changed, other than that maybe Pete DeBoer and the roster are just getting a bit long in the tooth and maybe need a bit of a change, but long story short, the Sharks aren't as dangerous as they used to be. It feels funny to say that about a team that still has uh, Thomas Hurdle, Logan Couture, Eric Carlson, but there's just something missing about the Sharks this season, and I really feel like it got highlighted in Wednesday's matchup against the Jets. Winnipeg's not exactly the world's best team either, so it was kind of surprising that the Sharks ended up losing 5-1. to the first period was a relatively even seesaw. Uh, not a whole lot happened. I think both teams were a bit reticent to go full throttle, so you could kind of tell that each team was a little bit hesitant, and I definitely feel like it was just sort of not the not the highest quality of hockey that we're used to seeing from both franchises. Funny enough, the Jets actually had the best opening chance. Uh, Yonu Luotu rang one off the post right behind Dell, and I thought for sure it was going to be, I believe, his first NHL goal, uh, but it just sort of pinged off the top crossbar and came back out. And then the stupidest thing happened. I'm not exactly sure if the Jets were on a line change or something, but like Logan Shaw, um, Lucas Abisa, and Anthony Potato kind of got caught by surprise by Joe Thornton, who sort of like, I don't know if he like shanked the pass between all three of them, but it found uh, Melker Carlson on a breakaway, and Carlson did not miss. Up until that point, Winnipeg had had most of the offensive pressure because they had a few nice power plays and they had some really good passing going on, especially with Line A back on the first power play unit. But here came the Sharks, I mean, on a, a really freak play. That was definitely a mistake. It just should have been punished so harshly. Thankfully, the Jets had another power play later in the period, and first power play unit Patrick Line once again put it in the net, as he's supposed to, on the top unit, like the Jets should have had in the first place. Not saying that they, you know made a mistake in putting him on Unit 2, but they really should not have moved him off Unit 1. It doesn't take an NHL coach to know that Patrick Laine's one-timer is one of the most fearsome shots in the in the league, and it really forces penalty-killing units to adjust to him. Without Laine, man, that first unit just isn't the same power play unit. I mean, this the special teams... I mean, the special teams in general this season have been very up and down, but the power play especially really needs his one-timer. After that, the Sharks definitely started to pick up the pace a bit, but it didn't end up mattering because uh, towards the end of the first period... David Gustafson had this really cool power move through the neutral zone. I think he basically embarrassed and undressed Eric Carlson for a highlight real goal that probably should not have gone in, but 
I think we'll take it anyways. It was a perfect top shelf snipe, and Arendelle never really saw it. He tried to stop it with his glove, it seemed like, but he just didn't really have the angle or the read. So, a nice first NHL goal for the Swede, uh, who's definitely one of my favorite Winnipeg Jets prospects, and somebody who I've bookmarked as a, a long term guy to watch. From there, the Jets were definitely sitting back a lot deeper and, and kind of let the Sharks run a lot more forechecking pressure. Uh, and the first line I felt defensively was pretty rough. But then, you know, towards the middle part of the second period, here comes Mark Shifley with a brilliant give-and-go uh, from behind the net. So the Sharks are now down 3-1, and at this point the game is basically over. Watching the Shifley goal is super weird because you're watching all of San Jose's defenders doing a little bit of puck watching and not really man-marking in front of the net. And, you know, I, I don't know how you leave Mark Shifley that open. Bit of a defensive disaster, which I'm, I think we're all pretty used to seeing with Winnipeg, but I mean, this coming from the Sharks is very surprising, and I feel like this is probably closer to what they've been struggling with this season. The rest of the game was mostly San Jose pelting Connor Hellebuck, Hellebuck being amazing, and then Kyle Connor and uh, Jack Roslovic potting some nice goals to close it out, so 5-1 win, we'll take that every day. The second game against uh, Anaheim was a lot less eventful. I think the Jets were not quite as good as they were against the Sharks, and they weren't exactly sparkling against the Sharks to begin with, so you can kind of get a sense that this was a bit of a slog. Uh, the Ducks and the Jets are not particularly good at defending the area in front of the crease, and tonight was especially bad for both teams. The Jets in the second period basically let the Ducks kind of walk them right down the center slot, so not ideal, not great. Connor Hellebuck, though, definitely great. Winnipeg ended up connecting first anyways. They opened the second period with a nice little power play goal from Neil Pionk. He let one go from the point, and it just didn't seem like Gibson ever really saw it. I don't think he was reading the right side, and it just totally blew by him. Later in the period, Winnipeg was kind of running a counter with, I think, Blake Wheeler and a couple of other guys, and then there was a nice, pretty give-and-go sequence between him and Ehlers and Morrissey, and just like that, the Jets are up 2-0, uh, with Ehlers collecting a, a nice little wrister with Gibson totally pulled out of position and fooled. It was just that kind of night for the Ducks. It just seemed like, even though they had some really great looks down the center slot, and Hellebuck ended up being the difference. I think the Ducks got a bit unlucky, uh, but Connor Hellebuck has been on a reel in the season, and the game against the Ducks was absolutely no exception. The final game on the Pacific Swing was against the Los Angeles Kings. Honestly, I don't really want to talk about this game because it was pretty bad, and you've basically seen this one before. For like a solid period and a half, the Jets basically forgot how to play hockey, and this is like the second time this has happened against the Los Angeles Kings. I don't know why the Kings give them this much trouble, but it's really weird. Like, I've watched enough of the Kings recently to know that they're a pretty bad team. Their record is pretty much reflective of how they're playing, and they are just not an offensive juggernaut. So like, I seriously don't get it. I... I I really don't know why they've been the boogeyman for the Jets. I hope it doesn't keep happening, because the Jets really need to take care of business against these kinds of teams. I'm not going to complain that much about a 2-1 road trip, but I feel like the, the Kings game was a bit of a missed opportunity, because once the third period rolled around, the Jets finally showed up, and at that point it's kind of too late. Winnipeg played legitimately good hockey against a bad Kings team. I mean, it's, it's nuts that they decided to wait till the third period to come back, but eh, you're not going to win every game, so one can only hope they can stop dropping points against teams like LA. It's just not a good look, especially when they got dominated for like half the game. And this is of course before Winnipeg's next boogeyman, which is the Dallas Stars. A team that prior to this season and the last season really didn't give them much, that much trouble, but it's been a different story recently. Uh, Dallas definitely owned the last matchup, and the first game that they played this year was an overtime loss to the Jets, which is cutting it pretty close, so I'm not overly confident. And we have a home and home this week, so... Yeah, we're going to find out how the Jets are and whether or not they've made any adjustments to Dallas's forecheck real quick. Up next, there's been some new developments in the Bill Peters case, but before we get to that, here's a quick word from DoorDash. Treat yourself to the meal you deserve, and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. 
Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code LOCKEDON. That's promo code LOCKEDON. Listening on the go? If you can't visit DoorDash right now, you can find this and all other offers from Locked On sponsors at LockedOnPodcasts.com slash offers. That's LockedOnPodcasts.com slash offers. Welcome back. Hope you've enjoyed the show so far, and if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform of choice, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets on Twitter. Last week, the Bill Peters situation more or less dominated NHL headlines, and for good reason. Uh, Bill Peters was alleged to have used very racist slurs in reference to uh, former NHLer Akeem Alou, and the situation absolutely ballooned out of control for, uh, for all parties involved, really. Some kind of weird stuff happened. Bill Peters sent this odd apology letter to the Flames management, and the apology letter was very uncomfortable and awkward. He never actually apologized to Alou himself, um, but he mostly just said that he was sorry about what he said, apologized for his actions, said that his language was unacceptable. You get the idea. What's really striking is that there's never actually an apology to Alou, and it just sort of talks around the situation like it's, ooh, I'm sorry, I got caught kind of thing. And for me, I really don't like this deflection of responsibility. I know Peters is probably uncomfortable with what, you know, what all has transpired, but he didn't even apologize to the person who was most directly affected by his words. It's probably one of the worst apology letters that I've ever seen, and I really feel like it's embarrassing that he put it together, especially in light of everything that's happened and all of the story corroboration from former teammates. Suffice it to say, Bill Peters is definitely done in the NHL. He is not coming back, not after this. Bill Peters isn't with the Flames, but he didn't actually get fired either. Uh, he ended up resigning, which was also kind of an odd situation. I think most of us were expecting the Flames to formally announce his firing, but that just didn't happen, and I'm not sure why. I don't know if there was a legal situation where they couldn't. Hard to say. There just hasn't been a part of this process that's been handled in a way that feels appropriate or normal. It's, it's all a bit new for the NHL, but even then, this has been kind of a PR disaster. If the league wasn't already concerned about the Bill Peters case in particular, they're going to have to worry about everything else that's going to come after this. I'm sure a lot of players are going to start speaking up now that they've seen a lose story. The Bill Peters saga definitely isn't over either, because former Carolina Hurricanes GM Ron Francis is now general manager of the Seattle franchise that's coming soon, and he keeps denying that he actually knew about the situation, yet there's evidence that players actually reported all of the things that were happening in the locker room to him. All I can say is that this is one gigantic mess and it's not going to be solved anytime soon. To make matters even more complicated, uh, NHL coach Mark Crawford is now under the microscope as well. An interview from like a year ago with Brent Sopel uh, kind of detailed some of the stuff Mark Crawford was doing behind the bench and in the locker room. And I won't really repeat what the conduct was, but it's very, very inappropriate. And it was basically psychological abuse. I think NHL coaches have gotten away with this stuff for many, many years, and now that the Alou story is out there, and now that the Crawford story is out there, there are going to be a lot more stories that come out, and some real consequences for those involved. As of this recording, Crawford was just suspended from the Blackhawks, uh, so yeah, he's already going to face the heat for what he's done, and the team has said that they're going to formally investigate the allegations against him. Honestly, I feel like it was only a matter of time before we started having issues like this. Uh, you saw last year with the Ottawa Senators, they had the Randy Lee scandal, which was bad enough. We've tended to put the microscope on players and all of their issues, including domestic violence, drug abuse, the list goes on. But I think the one thing that we never really asked was just how much involvement from NHL coaching staffs and executives is there in issues like these? And, you know, not just cover-ups, but actual direct participation in these crimes. The stuff that's been alleged against Peters and Crawford is certainly not criminal by any standard, but it's, it's morally reprehensible on almost every level, and I think we're all in agreement on that. 
This is just common sense stuff that you can't do anymore. And it wasn't acceptable then, even though it was tolerated. It certainly shouldn't be acceptable or tolerated now. I just hope that more and more players feel empowered to share their story because too many of these people have gone without consequences for a very long time. And I feel like at some point, your past catches up to you and this, this needs to be a watershed moment for the league. I think it's really important that we now set the example for the young kids and, and so that they see that all of this behavior is not acceptable, it's not tolerated, and it shouldn't be happening. And if they too are experiencing it, which I guarantee you they are, then they need to know that they're not alone and that there are people taking a stand for them and for themselves. This culture of quiet abuse just can't continue, it has to stop, and we really need to create a more supportive environment for our young kids. And that same thing goes for NHL players. They shouldn't be treated like crap. They deserve to be treated like human beings. And from the sounds of it, a lot of these coaches that were involved in these scandals really viewed them almost like cattle and livestock. You know, whether or not Crawford actually liked Brett Sopel, which it seems like he did because he played him a lot, he said, it doesn't really change the fact that his behavior was abusive and manipulative. And it sounds like Crawford was doing this to a lot of people because there are many rumors that, you know, Sopel is not the only one who's had this experience. A lot of players apparently are saying that they've had many, many run-ins with Crawford before. I think you always worry just how widespread this kind of stuff is, because you get the sense that it's a pattern of long-term behavior. Just because it happened once does not mean that it didn't happen again, in fact. It's likely to have happened multiple times. All of this coming out, though, might really help the league, and it might help our players, it might help our kids, it might help the culture of hockey as a whole. I think that hockey in general is a very closeted, quiet community, and they've suppressed a lot of the issues that have been holding them back for many, many years. Um, and now that the, the Peters and the Crawford stories are out, maybe this is the paradigm shift that hockey as a whole needs. I'm not going to guarantee that it's going to happen. I don't know that it is. And in fact, I feel like a lot of parts of the culture are going to resist this change. But all that said, every journey does begin with a single step, and this is definitely a major step in the right direction. The league definitely still has a lot of work to do. I mean, not just in domestic violence and sexual violence awareness, but in concussion protocol, uh, drug and alcohol addiction, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, at least we can start with some of the front offices and, and coaching staffs and figure out who the bad apples are. I've spoken at length about this issue, but if you have like a different thought or, or a comment that you'd like to make, please be sure to send it to us at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets on Twitter, or at my personal Twitter at HLLivingLoco. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I might feature it on our next podcast. Pending your permission, of course. Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk about some NHL trade rumors and an actual NHL trade that has just occurred. Before that, however, a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking around for this final segment of our podcast. Catch yourself lucky that you've stuck around for the most exciting part of the show, NHL trade rumors, where we get to yell at each other about trades that are never going to happen, or about a trade that actually did happen. But before we talk about a real NHL trade that actually did occur while this recording was going on, let's talk about some rumors. It appears that Edmonton and Dallas were both shopping Yesapulya Yarvi and Julius Honka, respectively. From my understanding, the Oilers are pretty reluctant to trade Yesapulya Yarvi without a really great offer. Um, they were content to just let him play in Finland and kind of wait it out. Uh, they still have his rights until he's 25, so it's not like there's a huge rush to push him into some kind of trade right now. That said, if Ken Holland got the right call from the right team, I'm sure he'd entertain an offer or two. Getting Honka out of Dallas seems like a bit of a harder task, just because no one seems to actually value Honka all that highly. For the life of me, I really don't understand it. I think Julius Honka's a pretty decent right-handed defenseman. He's not going to wow anyone, but he's probably second pairing, I'd say. I mean, you look at Winnipeg's defense when we have almost nothing on the back end, so he'd immediately be an upgrade on what we have right now. Honka's been the kind of guy who's been on the trade block for a couple of seasons now, so if he's not going to get moved at this deadline, he's not going to get moved anytime soon. 
I do feel bad for the kid because I feel like he's got something to offer to the NHL, um, and I'm sure there are quite a few teams that could actually use his services. There just aren't that many good right-handed defensemen that are Im- immediately available in abundance. Both Honka and Puyo neglected to sign their uh, RFA contracts this year, so they're not going to be eligible to play in the NHL season at any time in the near future. Bit of an unfortunate situation for both players. I also have a soft spot for Puyo not just because both of them are Finnish, but I mean, they're both really talented players. And I feel like Puyo skill sets are being wasted with the Oilers right now. I don't feel like they have a great handle on what they have in him, and they just haven't given him a shot to really prove himself either. Both guys are relatively young, so it's definitely not the end of the world, but for Puyayarvi and Honka to both be holding out this season, not a great sign for either of them. I think Puyayarvi really could benefit from having some North American hockey time, uh, more so than Honka at this point. Ain't gonna happen this year, though. Aside from those two, the biggest high-profile name that's currently on the trade block right now is possibly Taylor Hall. His expiring contract status and the lack of negotiations is definitely pointing to the fact that Taylor Hall is probably not long for this Devils roster. Uh, the Devils again lost tonight 7-1 to uh, against Buffalo, so that's not a good sign. New Jersey is a team that keeps having retrograde motion, and I feel like at this point they kind of need to look at their assets and figure out what they need to do to secure their future. For a team that just won the lotto pick, this is a pretty crappy situation to be in, but uh, unless they fire John Hines and suddenly turn things around, I don't get a great sense of Taylor Hall sticking around for any length of time. Taylor's not exactly young himself. I mean, he's like 27 or 28. He's kind of in his prime, and I feel like uh, the Devils need to make the most of his contract while they can. I really would advise against trading him. I'd, I'd advise against, you know, making a rash decision right now. But if the right offer came along, I, I guess everyone has a price tag, technically. I just don't really know where the Devils are going to replace Taylor Hall's total impact. I mean, he's been a tremendous player for them over the past couple of seasons, and I really feel like it's a bad idea to move him right now. Supposing a trade does occur, I'm not really sure what he's worth. Uh, (laughs) It starts with a first-round pick, I guess, Uh, but you'd probably have a decent-sized package. Expiring assets usually get less than what you'd hope for, um, unless there's some kind of extension that's agreed to beforehand. But even then, I don't feel like Mark Stone was all that expensive when he went to Vegas, so kind of a toss-up. Wingers are usually undervalued in this league anyways. Um, Centers always get the prestige and the trade value. Speaking of trade value, the moment you've all been waiting for, we actually have an NHL trade that occurred tonight. Chandler Stephenson has been traded from the Washington Capitals to the Vegas Golden Knights for a fifth-round pick in 2021. The Caps just cleared a little over $1 million in cap space for themselves, which I think is probably to help bring Carl Hagelin back into the fold. The Caps have like a seriously hilarious cap situation going on right now. I think every time Washington goes into any sort of contract negotiation, they basically just... The player will give some kind of a number, and then they're like, well, you know what? We've got a better offer. How about $10 million over four years? And for some reason, the player's always like, heck yeah, let's sign it. Let's do it. Nick Jensen, Richard Ponick, all these depth guys who actually are pretty good middle six or, you know, middle rotation kind of players all are signing these decent-sized contracts, um, but at a pretty low cap hit. That said, Washington has already had a lot of committed money on the books anyways, so they do need to clear out some cap space here and there to free up a little more wiggle room, Um, and the trade deadline's coming up pretty soon, so maybe they have another move in mind. As far as the Jets and the trade deadline are concerned, I'm not really sure to know what to wish list. Winnipeg's not really in a position where uh, trading for like one defenseman would fix their, their problems. The entire defense without Bufflin and Truba is a bit of a train wreck, so... I don't know, unless they're getting someone like Rasmus Dahlin or something, there's just not going to be much of an improvement to be had. Maybe the Jets kind of go wacky and go for like some big expiring contract or something. I really doubt it. I feel like they're going to play it safe like they usually do. Last year, they picked up uh, Kevin Hayes, and that didn't really pan out just because Paul Maurice didn't seem to like Hayes all that much and put him on the fourth line. 
Hayes was one of the best points producers um, when you looked at this points production per 60, but for some reason Maurice just didn't care for her style of play. I would say that personally, I've probably seen enough of this depth unit that they're running to, to last me a lifetime. If they could please call up someone like Janssen Harkins or Sami Niku at some point, I'd really appreciate it. Logan Shaw, Yonadolo 2, Lucas Abisa, these guys are just not cutting it at the NHL level. One guy I haven't really seen a whole lot of buzz about is Anton Chibasov, who's one of the free agent signings the Jets brought in this year. Um, he's been a really big kid, um, and he shut off some really deft hands during training camp, and it looks like his AHL season's been going pretty well so far. I'm not saying like the Jets are sitting on some 60-goal scorer down there in the AHL, but I wouldn't mind Chibasov getting a call-up at some point. Winnipeg doesn't have that many depth forwards to call up from the AHL, but uh, Jensen Harkins is definitely the name that's going to jump out for a lot of people. He's got 27 points in 23 games for the Moose, so not bad. Like Chibasov, I'm going to measure my expectations, but I definitely wouldn't mind seeing him over the usual guys that we've been dressing recently. And with that, that's all I've got for you guys tonight. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great one. Go Jets, go!